In this podcast, Pamela Barty, a Forbes 30 under 30 entrepreneur and developer of a $100 million real estate empire, will share her inspiring underdog comeback story. And along with those of her guests, she'll share how you too, as an underdog, can rise up and succeed against all odds. Here's your host, Pamela Barty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Underdog. Today, I have an amazing guest here with me. He's actually in the UK, Andy Lapata. Andy, how are you? I'm good, Pamela. How are you? I'm doing lovely. Andy, it is so awesome to have you here today, and I want to thank you so much for being here. And, you know, we have a lot to discuss in terms of, like, your new book, Just Ask, and just you in general, you know, I'm so excited to hear your story, your personal story, and then sort of intertwine that with the book a little bit. And my first question to you will be how or what inspired you to sort of go on your journey and write that book, Just Ask. So in terms of Just Ask, what happened was about, say about five years ago, my business was really struggling. And I'm a member of the Professional Speaking Association in the UK and come across the NSA, the National Speaking Association in America. And we call each other our tribe. You know, I've got really close friends within that community, both in the UK and, and globally, including the States. And, and I mean more than just professional friends, people who have become close friends of mine. And I was going to a lot of PSA meetings around that time. And people were asking me that classic question, how's business? And I was giving them the same answer everyone gives. It's great. It's fine. We were told in the 80s, stop saying it's okay. Say it's great. It's wonderful. And, and I was you know, giving these answers. And I was at one particular meeting and there was a workshop and, and there were questions in the workshop about the current state of your business. And I noticed that when we had to fill out this questionnaire first, which included these questions, and then put our hands up in the air as to what answer we or how we'd answered it. And there were four options, growing, stable, new, or in decline. And I noticed that nobody put their hand up in the air for their business being in decline. And mm -hmm. that included me. And we were really struggling. And so I was going to these meetings and I was lying. I was in this workshop and I was lying. And I, I realized I wasn't just lying to these people. I was lying to myself. And I wasn't really allowing people to help me. And I consider myself to be quite an open person, as you've probably gathered from the book. Yeah. And I thought, if I'm closed about this, what about other people? And if I'm not sharing with this community who I'm close to, who am I sharing with? Yeah. So I made myself a commitment at that point that I would turn the business around with the help of other people. And then when I had done so, I would deliver a keynote talk at the annual conference of the PSA to encourage everyone else to do the same. And, and that's exactly what I did. The response to the keynote was such that I realized that wasn't the end of the journey. And this was something that was a fit with the work that I was doing, although, you know, on first sight, it might not be. I've been known for years for, for networking and laterally professional relationship, but actually it is a fit because it's about who you share with and having a network of people you trust. While I felt comfortable delivering a keynote to that speaking community, the talk was a lot about our experiences and our shared world. And that wouldn't necessarily translate with my corporate clients. So I needed to 
dive deeper into the topic and there's no better way to dive into something fairly new than write a book about it because you can't publish a book if you you, you know you shouldn't publish a book I don't say you can't because people have you shouldn't publish a book unless you've really tried to master the topic first that's amazing that's amazing so basically it was through your keynote you were inspired to write the book because you're just keeping it going further and yeah did you have any inspirations for why that book was written beyond that? Yes. So in the period between me making that commitment to myself and delivering the keynote, someone in my network passed away, a guy called Richard. And Richard was really wonderful human being. I went to his memorial service and it was the classic example where everyone stands up and shares a memory and every memory was the same. Every memory was he was always there for me. He was always helping me. You know, he'd traveled to Africa at his own expense to help someone set up a charity there. And someone flew in from the US and said, you know what? I still don't know what Richard did for a living because mm. every time we met, he was only interested in me and he never talked about himself. And I found out the next day because there was a lot of mystery over what had happened. You know, he was a fit, healthy, early middle-aged man. And a friend of mine had seen him a week or two before, no sign of any health issues. And my worst fears were confirmed. And it was confirmed that he'd taken his own life. And it had been around money problems. And there was a big disconnect there between the amount of wealth and love in that room and the fact he had money problems, you know, and anyone would have helped him in any way they could had they known that alternative. But mm -hmm. nobody knew. His wife didn't know the extent of it. So that gave him a very personal ring to the mission that I was on, I guess. Wow. I actually had read that piece myself too. Mm -hmm. And I was blown away. And it's just like, it kills me because like you said, you're like, if I'm an extrovert and I'm closed off about my struggles, then what about the people that aren't right? Yeah. Or or maybe could be in a worse position or, you know, who's not saying it. And that's the thing about society. And you mentioned this in your book too, when I was reading it, you know, social media has created this depiction of reality that simply is not real. We all struggle. And, and I was telling you right before, right before this interview that, you know, my whole mission for this podcast was all about helping empower people through hearing the stories for the simple fact of knowing that they're not alone. So I complete like the mission of your book, I think is absolutely outstanding. Thank you. One positive thing I've seen because social media comes in for a lot of criticism. And one of the things I tried to explore in the book was whether it's a force for good or bad. And I, I think, I don't think there's a black and white answer to that, yes. you know, and, and I share Claire's story where, you know, for her, social media saved her life when she was in hospital with sepsis and not getting much sympathy or support from the healthcare professionals around her. And it's her, her tribe on social media that stood up for her. And there are other examples in the book of that nature as well. But we also talk about social perfectionism yeah. and how it drives particularly the younger generation, but I don't think exclusively so, to put up a, a false narrative of their lives. I didn't have time to explore in depth bullying and the impact of social media on bullying when you go to an even younger generation. One of the nice things, and I'm due to write an article about this for a football you'd call it soccer. You'd be wrong, but you'd call it soccer <laughs> for a football fanzine um, for the club I support. One of the nice things about it is that actually I see people being more open using social than they ever would have before in environments they wouldn't have done before. So I've been a football fan for a long time, for most of my life. 
And I grew up on the terraces, you know, with with all the laddish culture and the drinking and the banter that goes with it. I mention in the book that one of my friends from that world tried to kill himself a few years ago, and he's now a very strong advocate for mental health issues. And he talks very openly about what he went through. And it was amazing to see the support, this group of young lads, you know, macho alpha male lads, all fighting to be the peacock, you know, the hardest in the troop. The way they all banded around him when that happened, uh, he wasn't a pariah. He wasn't excommunicated. He was enveloped. And I thought that was important. And I follow the, the club's hashtag on Twitter. And it's really struck me how many people are talking openly about mental health challenges, about depression. Um, yesterday, someone posted about, you know, how much is oversharing. And she did this on the football club. Wow. discussion forum and all these people who don't know her many won't know her just came into support and i don't think that would have happened 20 years ago so i think all the ills of social media it's also brought a lot of positive uh to the party as well yes i would agree with you and i'm always going through that gray area of what is it you know because then you see the good and then you see the bad it's just so in my mm-hmm. generation i'm 29 i see a lot of the perfectionism coming into play yeah. so that's why for me i always kind of lean a little bit more this way because i'm like you know, I've heard so many people who have just like, they look at their idols or somebody who's really successful, right? And then they just feel so detached when it's like, it's not that far away. You know, everyone has their own journey, you know, and you just never know who's going through what at yeah. what given point in time. So like you said, your friend with the mental health issues, and then, you know, and then your friend Richard and all of that who have impacted sort of these story, you know, of just ask, which I think is so powerful because that's truly that is all you have to do. Just ask. And be open and be honest about it. And I think you make a really important point, and you said it earlier as well, letting people know they're not alone. And this social perfectionism, this, you know, the idolizing of other people, which is, you know, that's run through centuries, you know, from ancient Rome, they idolized the the emperors as gods and so forth. So it's nothing new there. But in the book, I share... I talked to Hattie Webb, who was with her sister, who was a backing singer for both Leonard Cohen and Tom Petty. And she said, shared stories with me about both of them, where they betrayed their nerves before big gigs. Leonard Cohen and Tom Petty. And I think it's so important we know that. You know, as a speaker, I tell people, you know, when they say, I can't do what you do for a living, you know, I get so nervous. I tell them I do as well. You know, before I give a big talk, I'm sweating like crazy. I won't tell you what my body does to me, but it's not pleasant. <laughs> and I'll be sitting, you know, directly before a talk, I'll be sitting in the audience. I'll be trying to look at my notes to remind myself because I've forgotten everything I'm going to say. And the lights have gone down and I can't see it. I'll be going over everything in my mind again. I'll be asking, why do they want to listen to me? And why are they paying me so much? And, oh, they don't need to hear this. And I'm going to bomb. It all goes through my head. When I tell people that and they've seen me speak, they're gobsmacked because I don't betray that when I'm on stage. And that's the thing. You wouldn't see Tom Petty perform, and I've been lucky enough to do so, and think that he's he's nervous before the gig. You wouldn't have seen Leonard Cohen do it or Beyonce or whoever it might be. I promise you, Beyonce gets nerves. She hasn't told me personally, but Beyonce (laughs) gets nerves. And, you know, whoever it might be, the best actors, actresses, some of your biggest stars would have been sick before they go out and perform physically sick but we don't see it and because we don't see it we think they are beyond us they're capable of things beyond us that might be true to some extent but they are still human and there's stuff going on in their lives any biopic will will tell you about right now i think it's so important that message is to simply know that you're not alone or like 
just the simple thought that, you know, in my hardest times, you know, in life, both personal and business, it was always like, well, if this person got through it, then I sure can. Like you always look to someone else who did it, right? And I feel like that's the case for a lot of people, even for myself. It's like, okay, well, I saw this person going through it. So it makes it less scary. Yeah. As you've said several times, you're not alone. You know, there are coping mechanisms out there. And I think that's really important. I interview a guy called Luke Ambler in the book. And Luke is a former professional rugby league player who was international player, top of the game. His brother committed suicide and he started a support group for young men. And he quit at 28 years old, peak of his career. He quit international rugby to focus on Andy's man club, which was named after his brother. And he said to me that you get guys come into these groups. Now, these are guys under 40 years old, likely to come, you know, particularly where Luke's originally from. It's expanded all across the UK and possibly beyond now, but certainly where Luke's from, likely to be sort of a very macho alpha environment. And they'll all come in and they'll, they'll look at their feet. He said, but when they hear, start to realise that they're around people who are going through the same thing as them, something changes, something shifts in them, and they suddenly share with vulnerability. And that's the shift when they know that they are surrounded by people who are going through the same as them. I can't quote you directly because I haven't got it in front of me. But one of the things I wanted to, to get to the bottom of in the book, which perhaps I didn't really get my answer to, was the gender differences. Are men more vulnerable than women? Women more vulnerable than men? Who will each gender share with and so forth? But Luke, I think it was the close of that chapter, Luke uh, said to me, it doesn't matter if it's man or a woman. People will share with people who have, who have experienced the same things as them. Right. I mean, I totally agree because, I mean, I know from the female standpoint, just nobody wants to admit. I don't even think it's a gender thing. Like nobody that I know, because then there's macho men that will never tell you that they're, that they're weak. And then there's the women that are like, it's ego, right? It's like your mentality. You never want to show weakness. And that was the case for myself too. Like I was mentioning to you before the podcast, I would never show any sign of weakness. I would never show any vulnerability. And I'm like, no, I'm the tough, resilient one, right? But like, that's not the healthy way to be, right? Because then people see you as some sort of like superhuman person and they can't relate to you. And it's just, and it's like, actually, no, that's not me. You know, I've been through all these experiences and I still struggle every day. Can I just pick up on the language you use there? And I think this goes to the crux of the point. Three times you said weakness, And this is the problem. We equate vulnerability with weakness. You said people want to look good. And that I found was the biggest obstacle. Vulnerability is a strength. Someone who has the courage to turn around and say, I don't know how to do this. I'm struggling with that. Will you help me? It's a damn sight stronger than, than the person who worries about looking bad and therefore won't tell anyone and won't get the answers that will help them. And as for resilience, you mentioned I'm resilient. Vulnerability for me is a key ingredient in resilience. Because resilience isn't about standing strong and letting things bounce off you. Resilience is about getting through difficult times still on top. And and what better way to get through difficult times than with the support of people who understand how to get through it? Or even if they don't, will still give you a push or hold you up through that journey. So vulnerability increases resilience. But we don't see it that way. We see it as vulnerability is the antithesis of resilience. Amen to that, Andy. You said it so perfectly. And the thing is, like, I was conditioned to believe that vulnerability is a weakness. So this was me prior to, I'm not going to talk about this. And I was like petrified to be vulnerable because this podcast, getting into this field and starting this, 
forced me to be vulnerable. And I was like, I don't know. What I've learned over the last year and a half is like exactly like what you just said. It's actually a strength and it actually builds resilience. And not only that, but you're also magnifying the lives of those around you because they feel comfortable that, okay, she's sharing and she's gone through that or Andy's gone through that. And he's sharing about this. Like, I don't feel so crazy or I don't feel so alone. That goal is maybe not too far away. I've just got to, you know, maybe what Andy said about the coping mechanisms might help me or all these different things. And I just found it so profound what you just said. So thank you for that. Thank you so much for that. Um, and I think it's so important for the world to hear and the listeners to hear and everyone's got to read Just Ask Them. And in addition to the book, you have a podcast as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually 2020 been a very creative year two books and a podcast <laughs> so yeah so the podcast is framed more around my fourth book which came out in the summer just mm -hmm. asked came out in december so my fourth book was connected leadership which looks at uh, how professional relationships underpin executive success so the podcast is the extension of that it's the same premise that you need strong relationships to achieve whatever your goals are which includes the support network so one of our launch week episodes was a very powerful conversation conversation around mental health in the workplace. So this is very much linked to this topic. So I've, I've been very lucky. I've interviewed some fascinating people from all over the world, predominantly US and UK, but they've included a NASA astronaut who was on the backup crew to Columbia and, and the follow-up mission to that, an Israeli orchestral conductor. We talked about how you take all the disparate talents and egos in an orchestra and bring them together into, into harmony, I guess would be the right word. The former CEO of Porsche and BMW, who took Porsche from a really failing business and turned it around and really excuse the pun, but accelerated BMW's profits as well. And, and Kevin had some, he also happens to be a world record holder for crossing the Atlantic in a rowing boat and has gone to two poles and, and so on. So he's a, a huge adventurer as well and a range of guests i'm probably doing a disservice if i try and sort of pick them really so that launched in september and i've been really delighted with the guests that i've had on that as well that's fantastic and i mean all of this is pretty much coincided with your career path which has been business networking strategist yeah and yeah it, it's quite interesting someone pointed out i hadn't worked it out before i've written five books over the course of 15 years and they actually plot my career because they start with building a business on bacon and eggs, which is about running business breakfast meetings, which is how I got into the business. Then it goes into and death came third, um, which is about networking skills, how to work the room and, and how to speak in public. Then on to recommended, which is about referral strategy, which became the core of what I did. And then the two books this year. So moving more into professional relationship strategies and vulnerability. So it's been quite interesting to see how the books have, have plotted exactly what I've been doing and, and how I've evolved as well. That's so interesting. So what inspired your career path in the networking space? My dad. Yeah. <laughs> My dad co-founded a business network in 1998. At the time, he said, would you like to come and see what we're doing? And I said, it's at seven o'clock in the morning, isn't it? He said, yes. I said, good luck. And then six months later, I quit my job and I was going to become a freelance writer. And he said, come and help us um, while you get some writing commissions. He ever intended for me to ever get any writing commissions and sort of sucked me into it. But it was, um, it was just natural for me. I'd never heard the word networking before he set up these groups because, you know, back then it wasn't banded around as it is now but it was something I'd been doing it was something I did naturally 
So it was just a natural uh, adjustment for me. Interesting. And so I have to ask, this is always a fun question, but what did you want to be when you grew up? (laughs) When you were a kid? Uh, So in my later teens, you know, when you're seriously thinking about career path, I came from a typical suburban middle-class family. And the expectation was you're going to be an accountant or a lawyer. Mm. Uh, Now, I would never say that's what I wanted to be, but I think it was the expectation for me. And actually, I was accepted to university to study accountancy. And I changed my degree at the last minute to political science because I realised I did two summers working as an office junior accountancy firm in in central London. And I realised that wasn't for me. Before that, to be honest with you, I can't really remember, you know, you, you probably had the typical childhood ideas of, you know, whether it's an astronaut or a policeman, I can't even remember. I was a very enthusiastic actor, actor, when I was, before I was 16. So when I was about 14, I was invited to audition for the Royal Shakespeare Company. So I was, I was pretty decent. And, and I normally had the lead role in, in most of the plays that I was in. And then I discovered football and girls when I was 16 and lost interest. So I think if there was anything that might have been a career path other than the the accountancy or law expectations, it was probably acting. But I don't think I ever got that far as to consider it. Interesting. So you were lead roles in everything. That's so awesome. (laughs) I I was Charlie Prince of Chiswick in 40 Winks Beauty, which is a very British joke on a very British approach, the pantomime. But yeah, I often took the lead role, I, but I think I let that get to my head a little bit early and then I got bored because I didn't get the lead role in something and threw a teenage hissy fit. But it's, you know, it's ironic, you know, one of my first girlfriends was still is a professional actress and she studied at, you know, one of the top acting schools in the country. And I caught up with her a few years ago. We talked about how the, the world has turned and how, you know, I go out there on stage in front of maybe a thousand people plus on a one man show. Wow. For up to an hour and a half and, you know, having given it up when I was 16. It's not acting, but, you know, I think that that certainly helped me in what I do now. Isn't that interesting how, you know, mm. the moments that you had when you were younger actually shaped yeah. you when you're yeah. older? Because for yeah. me, I was in the restaurant world up until I was 21. I had two restaurants by the time I was 21. My really? son that I was owning and operating it. You know, and then getting I worked into- in restaurants. <laughs> I was a barman. <laughs> you know, but like all these things, they actually yeah. teach you how to multitask, how to, yeah. you know, how to work well under pressure, like all these things that I didn't think, you know, the restaurant industry would have helped me in. But getting into construction and real estate and everything was actually perfectly applicable, you know, which is awesome. It sounds like it was the same for you when, when it came to the acting and then kind of those skills helped you in a way when you became a speaker. In my 20s, I haven't had a a normal career path. I mean, it probably is normal for a lot of people, but it's not the one we teach because I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I'd left university early because of health reasons and also because I wanted to work in the record industry and there weren't any openings for graduates and I got offered a job. That lasted three months. You know, I became a civil servant. I hated that. It was just that was a job. So I went, I jacked it in and I travelled. And I worked on film sets and I ran tours of Cape Town and and I was cold caller in, in Sydney and Melbourne, and Brisbane. And I worked at the race course and I did all these different things when I travelled. And then I came back and was a sound engineer. I did all these different things. I ran car parks, was my last proper job. And I think in a way that's helped, it's hindered me as well. 
but in a way that's helped because I've, I've worked for big companies. I've worked for small. I've seen different environments. I mean, I'd love to say that my work as a sound engineer has helped now that I'm recording podcasts and so on. But it's so long ago that we used to cut actual tape with a razor blade and stick it back together to edit it. I'm not that old, but I am that old, if that makes sense. <laughs> we forget digital hasn't been with us that long. So it's not exactly that transferable. But yeah, it shaped me doing all these different things and not really finding my niche until I was 29. Wow, that's incredible. And thank you for sharing that, that you kind of went through all these different paths, mm. you know, before you got to where you're at, because I, I find that a lot of people, that happens for a lot of people too. And they feel like, oh, I should have known what my career is by now and this and that, you know, society standard of, you know, by 29, you should be married, have a family, have your job, be sky mm. skyrocketing in your career, blah, 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 you know, all that stuff. And it's like, it's not that way at all, right? You have to try to see what you like. Like how on earth are you going to end up finding your dream career without not knowing what you don't like to do, right? Unfortunately, figure out what you don't like. Some people find it very quickly, and that's lucky in many ways, but perhaps they miss out on the richness of exploration. It's the same as, you know, my sister settled down and got married at a relatively young age. I'm still single now. Do I regret that to some degree? Yeah, I do. But equally, would I have been able to experience what I've experienced in my life if I'd have settled down? The right person for me was way back when, you know, a long time ago. I would have kids in university now if I'd have settled down with her. And I wouldn't have done what I, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I'm not saying it would have been a worse thing if I'd followed that path. It would have been a different path. I've experienced a very <laughs> a fascinating and uh, an unusual journey in the period in between. And I wouldn't have had that. And it, it's the same with career. It's the same with life. There is this prescribed way of living. And I think that generation by generation, people are bucking that trend. People are getting married later in life. They're building portfolio careers more easily. When I was at school, people wouldn't think about being an entrepreneur. The irony was both my parents ran small businesses and it never occurred to me to run a small business until much, much later in life because that wasn't the expectation. You know, I went into the civil service. I resigned after four years and people were in shock because no one at my grade ever resigned, mm. let alone resigned to go traveling the world. Those things now, I think, for the millennial generation, normal. And that will shift again with the next generation coming through. That's powerful stuff. Powerful stuff. And now my question for you, uh, another one. <laughs> what would be the biggest piece of advice that you would give anyone out there through your life experiences? I think it's very hard to answer a question like that because any advice you give should be predicated on what that person needs and wants. And then actually, you know, I was going to give some advice based on, on the premise of the book, but actually based on that instead, the biggest advice I, I would give is make your interactions with other people more about them than about you. And yes, when you need it, you need to be able to ask for help. You need to be able to ask for support and you need to put you at the front at certain points. But if you've invested in those relationships up front, if you sat and listened to other people, not with what's in it for you in mind, but just to see how you can help them. If you've made connections for people whenever you see it possible, if you've been a shoulder for them to cry on when they need it, then when you need them, they'll be there for you. I think I'm thinking of myself when I give this advice because I've worked out through this whole process of, of this book that I'm one of life's fixers. If you tell me your problem, I want to fix it. But actually, you might not be telling me because you want a solution. You might be telling me because you just want to get it off your chest. 
And that's what I mean by making it about the other person, not about yourself. The fixer makes it about themselves. I want to fix you. But the listener makes it about the other person. Why are you telling me this? What can I do to help you not diving in with a solution? Sometimes the answer is you're just helping by listening. Don't want any more. Right. I love that. And that coincides with with your book big time. And another question I wanted to ask you regarding the book, because you had mentioned coping mechanisms, like what would be one of the best coping mechanisms that you could think of that would help somebody get through that hump of whatever it is that they're going through? One of the best coping mechanisms is stolen from a friend of mine called Paul McGee. And Paul McGee has written a number of very successful books. His most famous is Sumo. Sumo stands for shut up, move on. Mm. And so the whole idea of this is it's about how to cope with stress, how to cope with issues, and it's about getting over it and moving on. And someone turned around to Paul after the initial success of Sumo and said, Paul, sometimes I don't want to shut up and move on. Sometimes I just want to wallow. And Paul came up with the concept, the idea of wallowing, came the, the name hippo time. And he said, sometimes we just need hippo time. We just need to wallow. And I think that one coping mechanism is to embrace the ability to wallow, but not let it overtake you. I think that there's a danger of either not dealing with setbacks, not giving them the space to, to be able to deal with them well enough because we feel we have to sumo, shut up, move on. So we're not dealing, we talk about dealing with grief. It's very similar. So we're not dealing with whatever it is that's bringing us down, that's frustrating us, that's holding us back. If we find that hippo time and we allow a certain amount of time for it, we can then come through the other side. But the other part of that is to come through the other side, because I think what a lot of people who do struggle with, whether it's mental health problems or whether it's as simple as just finding life difficult, it doesn't have to be mental health issues. I think that wallowing is a very attractive place to be a very easy place to get stuck in and so we need to come through the other side so I share in the book how the journey of getting the book published was not an easy one I got my contract very quickly with a globally known big publisher but the experience wasn't what I hoped the manuscript rightly uh, rejected because they weren't good enough and after the third rejection when I thought I'd got it right I wallowed two months and I share in the book how I came out, but for two months, I couldn't do anything. And I didn't even tell anyone. You know, I've written this book about being open and honest and transparent and telling the world. I didn't tell anyone, but that was right for me then. And when the moment came to talk about it, I talked about it. And it's about having that hippo time in your journey, but knowing it's only part of the journey and not getting stuck in it. Right. Allowing yourself time. Because the thing is, like, you know, you can't just pretend like that issue's not there right? You can't because it is right. And you need yourself time to heal. And that's okay. Just don't, like you said, don't drown in it. Don't get stuck in it. Just keep it going. And it's interesting that you went through the process yourself too, before releasing that. It was fascinating. I mean, that became a core part of the beginning of the book, as you'd have read, you know, the journey, because uh, I think I called it the just ask journey. It's quite funny. When I had my initial conversations with the publishers, I had a lot of interviews uh, as you'll know, a lot of stories I share in the book. One of the key things they said is make sure your story is in there. Truth be told, I have stories. I, you know, I, I have the story I shared with you at the beginning. I have stories, but they're not as emotionally powerful to my mind as some of the ones I share, which, you know, there's some very powerful and very personal stories shared in the book. And I don't feel that 
if I was writing the book, I would use my stories as an objective one necessarily. And then, but I, you know, I had things that worked for the beginning and the end of the book so that that connection with me was there. And, you know, why else am I writing the book? And then it was really funny that Just Ask Journey turned out to be the perfect story for the book and to lead it off with. And it was the book was going to provide me with that story all along. That's amazing. Oh, my gosh. Now, you know, with your all your life experiences, the books and everything. Now, what would your older self tell your younger self? I'm seeing this question and dreading being asked it because it's a very complicated answer. (laughs) (laughs) I (laughs) I didn't have a brilliant childhood. I was heavily bullied at school. I suffered badly from asthma and eczema. I was very small. I had a pretty rotten time of it. And I think that my message to my younger self would be to persevere and, and to understand that in the long run, winning against these bullies and winning you know, against society, it didn't matter. That doesn't matter. It's about what you achieve for yourself and you can be proud of yourself in your career and your life. You know, I think I've done that. I believe I've achieved that. I remember many years later seeing one of those bullies in the pub at football and he was all on his own and I was surrounded by friends and he was upset that I didn't want to have anything to do with him now maybe there's a part of me these days that would would be more open and you know and have the conversation but you know it, it, the tables had turned that's not what I advocate necessarily but it, it was a win let's face it to be able to turn around to that kid and say that day will come I don't care how spiritual you are how altruistic you are that kid would have needed to to have heard that. I think the other thing I would say would be understand the internet very early and set up an online bookshop that you then develop into an online seller of all goods. (laughs) (laughs) And do it before before Jeff Bezos does. (laughs) Amen. Amen to that. And you are so awesome. You're so awesome. And now everyone needs to know where to find your awesomeness in your book. Where can everybody find you? Well, I'm pretty easy to find with a name like mine, Andy Lapata. So the book's on Amazon. It's on all the bookstores online and, and you can order it at local bookstores if they don't stock it. All the relevant links to me, Linktree, so it's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash Andy Lapata, A-N-D-Y-L-O-P-A-T-A. So that's L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Andy Lapata. I'm sure you'll put those in the show notes. That then has links to the podcast, to the to the two most recent books, to my Amazon page, I think, my blog, YouTube channel, everything. Or just, you know, search me out on uh, whichever site you're on. I'm on most of them. Andy, you're so awesome. Thank you so much for being here today and for your message and just genuine authenticity. Thank you so, so much for being here. The only dream that I've been chasing is my own. So that's it for today's episode of Underdog. Head on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in the grand prize drawing to win a private VIP day with Pamela herself in Boston, Massachusetts. Be sure to go to theunderdogshow.com and pick up a copy of Pamela's free gift. And join us on the next episode.